Some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. These are the words of C.T. Studd, who gave up his career playing international cricket for England in order to become a Christian missionary in China. I find them hugely inspiring, but at the same time, hugely challenging. C.T. Studd decided to follow God's call when he realised that earthly wealth and fame could never satisfy compared to the adventure of following Jesus Christ. He accepted the temporary danger of following Jesus because he understood that the eternal glory caught up with living for God was worth more than anything else. And it's this idea of following Jesus that forms the backdrop of our passage on this Commitment Sunday. Follow me, Jesus says in verse 22, whilst also emphasising the fact that nothing else should take precedent over being obedient to his call. But today we have a somewhat less committed take on what it means to follow someone. Those of you who use Twitter will be used to following friends, celebrities or organisations by adding them into your Twitter feed. For those not familiar with Twitter, it's a service where you can see what's going on in the lives of people or organisations you're interested in. It's a platform where people share their wisdom, humour and opinions and point you to articles or information they think you should know or read. It's simple to follow someone on Twitter. All you have to do is to tap a button on your mobile phone or click on your screen and it's done. You can follow people as famous as Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey or as innocuous as a stranger you've just met down the streets. What makes Twitter so popular is you're in control of who you follow and they demand very little commitment from you in return. You can learn a lot about a person you're following without having to invest anything in yourself in terms of time or energy into having a proper relationship with them. So my question this morning is why would anyone want to follow Jesus when he asks you to invest so much of yourself in order to know him. So in what follows, I hope to share why I believe following Jesus is the best decision you can make in your lives. In order to do this, we're going to take a look at the two stories in the life of Jesus that Annabelle read out. Jesus calms the storm and Jesus restores the two demon-possessed men. We'll take each of them in turn, and we're going to ask two questions. What kind of man is this, and what kind of response is that? If you're here today beginning to explore why Jesus is worth following, my hope is that you'll find courage to take your first steps with him. If you're already a committed follower of Jesus, my hope is you'll be inspired to commit even deeper to your relationship with him. So let's, if we've uh, closed our Bibles, turn them back open to page 972. And we're going to start by looking at Jesus Calms the Storm, which is from verses 23 to 27. Our first question we're going to ask through the lens of the disciples' experience. What kind of man is this? 
the first rather shocking answer is that Jesus is not afraid to take his disciples into a stormy situation. Jesus doesn't see the threat of danger as being something that will have a detrimental effect on the faith of his disciples. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus knows because he's in full control, a storm presents an opportunity for his disciples to grow in faith. Previously in chapters 5 to 7, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's uh, teaching those gathered around him a whole heap of theory about what it means to be a person who follows God. And I'm sure as Jesus was delivering this message, the crowd were just nodding with approval, agreeing with the wonderful words he was saying. But it's easy, isn't it, to believe something in theory? It becomes a very different prospect if you're then asked to carry out that learning in practice. Jesus knows there's a huge difference between knowing a truth in your head and that truth having to work its way deep into your heart through real life experience. A life actually lived will always be the proving ground of faith. That's why it's necessary for Jesus' disciples to step into the boat and follow him. Confident faith in Jesus can never come by remaining on the shore. So turning our attention to the storm itself, the Greek word used to describe its fury in verse 24 is seismos. It's where we get our English word seismic from. It's as if an earthquake suddenly came upon the lake. Such dramatic storms are not uncommon in the area because of the geography and climate of the region. However, what was uncommon is how suddenly the storm subsided when Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the waves. Verse 26 tells us that at the command of Jesus, the lake of Galilee became completely calm. Through the experience of the storm, the second thing the disciples learn about Jesus is that he is a man with authority over the wind and the waves. The calming of the storm by Jesus wasn't a clever trick of timing by Jesus who just happened to speak as the storm was blowing itself out. The disciples knew it was a miraculous event. Sometimes when I'm driving in the car with Hannah and we get to a red light, I like to play a game where I say, now go green. And occasionally, if my timing is right, the lights move from red to flashing amber to green with the sound of my command. Now when this happens, Hannah looks at me in awe and amazement and she thinks I'm the king of the world. But of course, however supreme I feel, the reality, unfortunately, is far from true. I have no real authority over the traffic lights. However, the disciples, panicking in the boat with Jesus, knew he had commanded the storm to stop, and it was much more than a clever trick of timing. By being in the boat with Jesus, his disciples witness the wind and the waves obeying him. By following Jesus, his disciples learnt he had authority over the created world. They gained a greater revelation of who Jesus is. Well, now we're going to look in more depth at the disciples' experience of the storm to ask the question, what kind of response is that? 
And the answer we find is that in the midst of the storm, the disciples respond to Jesus in fear and faith. Many of you will know that the disciples were a rugged bunch, and at least four of them were experienced and weather-beaten fishermen. Yet when the fury of the storm becomes even too much for them to handle, they cry out to Jesus in fear, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. In the panic, I wonder what the disciples imagined Jesus the carpenter could possibly do. The disciples had seen Jesus perform healing miracles, but thus far they had no reason to believe he possibly could have control over the storm. But still in their fear, the disciples instinctively turned to Jesus for help. And it's here that the response of Jesus to his disciples is very interesting. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Before rebuking the storm, Jesus first turns to issue a mild rebuke to the disciples for being so afraid. I don't think it's just because Jesus was a bit grumpy at being woken up from his sleep. The phrase, you have little faith, carries the sense not of the disciples having no faith at all, but rather the disciples having an ineffective faith. Negatively put, the disciples' faith has not yet had to sustain them through any trials. It's a faith that has not yet been given the chance to fully mature. However, on a positive note, the disciples are about to learn from their experience of seeing Jesus calm the storm in a way which expands their vision of who he is and builds their trust in him. Even those the disciples cry out to Jesus in fear for their lives, in the midst of the storm, because the disciples followed Jesus into the boat, when things got desperate, they had placed themselves in the right position for growth. After witnessing Jesus calm the storm, they looked at him and were amazed. So how about you? What's your response to Jesus' invitation to follow him? Are you placing yourself in the right place for growth? How recently have you nervously stepped into the boat with Jesus and been amazed at the eventual results? Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, but your faith remains ineffective because you've not given it the chance, the opportunity to mature. I'm not asking us to achieve feats parallel to the likes of C.T. Studd. He had his own calling from God in accordance with his measure of faith. Instead, I'm asking, what might be the next step for you in order to increase your level of amazement in your life and deepen your relationship with Jesus? It makes me think of a frail 92-year-old widow called Dorothy who spoke bravely at the front of church on our Vision Monday two weeks ago. For some, that wouldn't be a scary experience, but for her, it was a huge deal and a massive opportunity to grow in faith. I think of a person or family who nervously step into church for the first time and hope that somebody is going to welcome them. I think of those who let go of their inhibitions and come for prayer ministry, not because they've got any major presenting issues, simply because they want to know more of God in their everyday lives. 
I think of those anxiously signing up to do a trial shift at the Joel Homeless Shelter to see if volunteering more regularly is something they could do. I think of those who tentatively ask someone to be their prayer partner in accordance with HTC's vision for this year. And it excites me to think of those who are studying a celebration of discipline in their small groups, how they're going to grow and broaden their opportunities to grow in faith over the next two terms. And as Philip said, remember to check out Mike Hall's blog. It's brilliant. All these steps and many more provide new opportunities to encounter Jesus in ways you've never expected before. One of the tragedies of our modern culture is people feel they need to have every question answered before they're ready to commit to following Jesus. When we live our lives like this, we miss out on the adventure of life. Gary Neville, the ex-Man United player turned football pundit, recently turned his hand to trying to manage the Valencia football team. He said, I am committed to know what it is like to run a football team. I need to know what it was like to be a head coach. I could not sit there on television any longer or writing about football any longer or talking about coaching, tactics, management. I could not sit there under England manager Roy Hodgson any longer without thinking, I need to go and do it. I need to go and do it. I pray that might be your response in making your next step to follow Jesus this morning. Very rarely will anybody be amazed by the power of God if they remain on the shore. The faith of disciples grew as they got into the boat with Jesus. Uncertain as they were, it was living out the faith that they had in practice. And it's the same for us today. Well, in the next part of the passage... We're going to see what happens when Jesus arrives on the disciples on the side of the shore. And we're looking now at verses 28 to 34 to see how Jesus restores the demon-possessed men. And this time, we're going to be looking at Jesus through the lens of the demon-possessed men, and then latterly and briefly, the men of the surrounding region. To the disciples' question, what kind of man is this, in verse 27, the answer is found on the lips of the demon-possessed men in verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shout. The demoniacs give Jesus the title, the son of God. Their question literally translates as, what to us and to you, son of God? The demoniacs instinctively recognise that Jesus belongs to God in a way that others do not. And as a consequence, they know there is no common ground between them and Jesus. Like oil and water, the demons and Jesus just cannot mix. In Jesus, the demons see a rule and authority that those in opposition can never accept. In our House of Commons, the different political parties might oppose each other's policies, but ultimately, all the MPs are willing to sit under the same room together, under the same roof, in order to vote on how they think to improve society as they think best. And at the end of the day, everybody comes under the authority of the policies that are voted through. There's no democracy between Jesus and the demons. Their kingdom objectives are entirely poles apart. 
Such opposing forces cannot be in the company of each other at the same time. So when the demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God, who has a judgment over evil at the end of time, they know they're in trouble. Their violence and shouting cannot threaten Jesus. In Jesus, they see one who has authority over the spiritual world and it leaves them shocked to see him standing before them now, before the appointed time. Of course, to our modern ears, the idea of Jesus being the torture of evil seems too extreme for our sensitive souls. In our material world, where God and the devil are put into the realm of fantasy, we've lost any concept of sin, and some people struggle to acknowledge that evil even exists. As one commentator says, first we deny the fact of evil, and so we wipe away any trace of it from the record of history to suit our own needs. Then we deny the face of evil, refusing to assign any responsibility for a crime to a person who actually committed it. But try as hard as we might, we can never deny the feeling of evil, that feeling that hits us in the gut when we know something is wrong. That's why so many are lost in our society. They feel the full force of evil in their gut, but they have nowhere to really locate and direct their inner pain. They can't trust in the justice of men, but they won't accept the loving judge of all, God above. Jesus doesn't skirt around evil in such ways. He has only one word for it. He commands it to go. And perhaps, if you're a follower of Jesus, you could be more forthright in your stand against evil. When you see injustice in the world, you could be among those who call it out for what it is. Yes, unlike the demons, Christians can take huge comfort from knowing God has set a day when evil will be judged and brought to naught. But because of the incarnation of Jesus 2,000 years ago, followers of Jesus have been set a pattern to boldly live out our lives now in a way which speaks of God's ultimate victory in the future. It reminds me of a famous quote attributed to Edward Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. But perhaps more pertinent are some words from Psalm 12. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honoured by the human race. As people who follow Jesus, we're called to protect the vulnerable from those who strut around committing violence as if there was no ultimate judge. Can we who follow Jesus, be known as those who so side with what is loving and pure that when we come into contact with evil, the opposing kingdom values at play are obvious to all. In this way, those who seek peace and justice in the world will be attracted in and want to stand alongside with us. Well, to press the point home, for the second time, let's ask, what kind of response is that? When the demon-possessed men see Jesus, they respond by cowering in weakness and fear. While the disciples turn towards Jesus in their fear, 
The demons turn away from Jesus because of their fear. The sight of, the de- uh, the sight of Jesus reminds the demons that their days are numbered. And they beg Jesus to drive them into a herd of pigs. This is how we know that the region where Jesus landed is Gentile territory. To the Jews, pigs are unclean and could never graze in any of their land. It's probably therefore no accident that Jesus is going to drive them, that when Jesus is going to drive them away, that the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. They represent a suitable dwelling place. So when Jesus exercises the demons from the men, the pigs become afflicted instead. The Gospel of Mark tells us there are approximately 2,000 of them. And as a precursor to the fate of evil in the final judgment, all of them fly down the hill and die in the Lake Galilee. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen any pigs stampeding, but I can assure you it's a terrifying sight. It's not like the fun pig racing that takes down at uh, Hobble Down Farm to entertain the children and some of the adults too. I, had the, uh, one, I once had a chance to go to do some wild camping in Patagonia. And one morning, as we woke up, we disturbed a herd of wild boar in full flight. I was anchored to the spot, praying not to be taken out at the knees. It's no wonder the men tending the pigs were stunned and ran away to report all that had happened to the local townsfolk. And it's the response of the townsfolk I want us to ponder as we draw close to an end. Because to solely focus on the plight of the pig is to miss the point of why Matthew really includes this story in his gospel. Here we see Jesus, the King of the Jews, beginning to reach out with his authority and power into Gentile territory. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, was doing what the Jewish people couldn't do themselves. Jesus was inaugurating God's blessing to all nations. Before Jesus came to the region, the demon-possessed men were abandoned by their society and hung out by the tombs, which gives us an indication of their spiritual state. But when Jesus arrived, he cast out the evil from the men. They were fully restored to their right mind, ready to live a life at peace with themselves and with others. It's as if they were born again. But the response of the townsfolk is telling. Having been confronted with the real live power of God, they're not ready to follow Jesus and so they reject him. Despite Jesus restoring two of their number to full health, they're fearful of what it might cost them to have Jesus stay. So they plead with Jesus to leave their region, to go away. About verse 34, one commentator writes, All down the ages the world has been rejecting Jesus because it prefers pigs. Unfortunately, this is still true for many today. Although Jesus has authority over the created and spiritual world, he won't use his power and authority to force people to love him. However, despite all the rejections Jesus receives, he still keeps on inviting people to join the adventure of following him. So can I ask, where is your heart at this morning? 
Essentially, we've seen three responses to Jesus today. Which one would you like to identify with? Firstly, we saw the disciples who got into the boat with Jesus. Their faith wasn't mature, nor were they certain about the journey ahead. However, they'd seen enough to believe that Jesus was worth following. And when the storm came and they panicked, they received a great revelation of who Jesus is. And as it calmed, they were amazed. Secondly, we saw the response of the demons who were opposed to everything Jesus stood for. They were bent on continuing on their path to destruction and wanted to take as many people along with them rather than come and bow the knee before Jesus as the Son of God and Judge of all. And thirdly, we saw the response of the townsfolk who had received clear evidence that Jesus could bring peace to those who were spiritually dead. But for the moment, the personal investment of following Jesus felt like too much. So rather than welcoming him in, they chased him away.